This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. We're almost at the big 300. Welcome to episode 299 of the Paddock Pass podcast and a show that will delve into events and talking points of the All Thailand Grand Prix. I'm Adam Wheeler, back from the Motocross of Nations duty and still praising some sort of higher power that we have a weekend free or without a MotoGP race. Um, actually, that's not quite true. Uh, there is motorcycling going on as Steve is about to travel to Portimao for World Superbike. But um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm relieved that MotoGP, the three in a row, is now over. With a highly energized power source behind MotorMatters.com, David Emmett, as a wingman and a slightly soggy journalist supreme, with a voice that will match the tones of the rumbling thunder that echoed around Burirang last weekend, Mr. Neil Morrison. Neil, you missed Japan but flew out to Thailand and now have just over a week uh, before entering the paddock at Phillip Island for the first time in three years. Uh, so where in the world are you right now? I am in Bangkok Ad, uh, on a little layover between um, Buriram and um, Phillip Island. And it hasn't stopped raining since the uh, race finished yesterday. I think we got pretty lucky, actually. I know it was a bit dodgy at the start of the race, but it hammered it down pretty much from the moment the race finished and it continued hammering down right the way through last night. So uh, thankfully, rather pleased to be out of Buriram and uh, glad to report that my, uh, my motel that I was staying in didn't flood. Um, so in the relative comfort of uh, a nice dry hotel in in Bangkok. Uh, when we were talking on the Paddock Pass note show for Patreon uh, subscribers, you mentioned there was quite a lot of wildlife around your hotel. Um, there was no kind of risk there involved, uh, I gather, as well as the water level rose. Thankfully, no. No, although our, our good friend and colleague Pete McLaren was showing me some uh, some wildlife that he's encountered in his uh, motocross adventures or enduro riding adventures uh, when he's out in Thailand, and uh, they include uh, cobras uh, going across the road. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure I would be that comfortable with that kind of wildlife uh, <laughs> standing or, or slithering next to me. Dave, uh, the flow of pros on motomatters.com and occasionally on, off- on trackoffroad.com usually comes at some frightening time of the morning. Um, so how have we handled the time, the time zone tumult this last couple of weeks? Uh, well, I'm, at least I'm considerably drier than the moist Mr. Morrison. Uh, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, mostly by sort of skipping the morning sessions uh, because and having a bit of a lie-in and catching up later because uh, actually getting up at those sort of times is... Um, uh, it, it's just not good for my body clock. My body clock runs to an entirely different schedule anyway. Uh, so yeah, yes, it's been it's it, it's it's not been it's not been at all fun. And I, and I am really, I mean, like I love Philip Island. I just wish it wasn't at such a ridiculous time in the morning. Or completely on the other side of the world. Um, as ever, this podcast is brought to you because we have some excellent support from friends in the USA. A reminder that Renthal is not only a massive name for bars, sprockets, and other essential accessories in off-road, but also for street bikes. Their products are used by none other than the Kawasaki Racing Team in World Superbike, and there's a whole host of options to fully customize the ride you have in the garage. The same could be said of Fly Racing. The WPS-owned brand is a major part of the fabric of AMA Supercross and also MXGP, but has a large catalogue of street gear. It's decent quality and reliable stuff, so have a look at flyracing.com. Without further ado, guys, uh, moments of the weekend uh, from the Chan International Circuit. Dave, uh, you first. 
Uh, well, my moment of the weekend was um, uh, Joanne Zarco. Uh, the moment, because from about the well, I suppose the last third of the race, he started really going fast. I mean, he was there was a period of the race where he was anywhere between a second and a, and, and well, half a second and a second faster than anyone else on track. Um, he quickly caught up with. Um, um, Mark Marquez and Pekka Banyaya at a certain point he got past uh, Mark Marquez um, and he looked like you know he looked capable of catching uh, Miguel Oliveira and Jack Miller um, if he'd have got past uh, Banyaya and Marquez uh, he caught up with Marquez he got past Marquez um, then he sort of hesitated a little bit and afterwards he said uh, look, it wasn't worth it. I, I, I knew I couldn't win the race anymore. Uh, it was too late. He caught up with him too late. So I just uh, I just let it go. But it looked... Um, also, it, it, I think also he didn't... He probably used up a little bit more of his tyre towards the end. But it was... I mean, we've been talking about team orders for a very long time in, uh, in MotoGP. And it looked, it looked very team ordery. Were you very disgusted by the apparent use of brand orders? We should call it brand, really. Yeah. They're not the same team. Brand orders. You know, were you kind of there just, you know, making faces at the screen, Dave? I was, I mean, I was sort of mildly, I was a bit disappointed. Uh, I did uh, sort of actually tweet, send it. But then I also, because you just want, <laughs> you just want to, to to see it happen. And, you, and really, you want this to be um, as difficult as possible. And uh, that also means uh, stopping, uh, you know, like stopping the might of, of Ducati. Because it's, the thing about, Fabio is it's an underdog story. Do you know what I mean? You know, Ducati are just crushing um everyone, uh crushing all opposition. They're a little bit like uh, the they're a little bit like the Empire and their stormtroopers at the moment. So uh, um any little bits of uh, of resistance, I'm all for it. I know uh, Zarco obviously had that uh, moment at the end where he probably could have passed Peko. In fact he definitely could have passed Peko, but decided not to. But just going back and watching some of the race um earlier today um i mean i was just struck by the fact that this is probably another along with silverstone this year this is just another race that should have been Zarco's. really uh i think he said the fastest lap five times uh if you look at the fastest lap of each rider through the race he was half a second faster than the second quickest rider so he had a huge advantage and okay he didn't have a great feeling early on but um you know when it did come to him his pace was just ridiculous um and so far ahead of the rest. Um, I think there were laps where he was nearly a full second faster than Miguel Oliveira, who was leading. So um, it's another one of those races where it just makes you, uh, it cements your position or cements your thought that uh, Johan might just be one of those guys that goes through life without ever winning a MotoGP. Yeah, his, his unbroken string of failing to win a race uh, continues. Yeah, Neil, I mean, I think you said in our WhatsApp group, you know, you put Zarco question mark, you know, when he was coming through. And don't forget, I mean, behind Mark, he's probably one of the masters of, of mixed conditions or changing conditions. You know, the highlight of his uh, doomed KTM tenure was when I think he put the bike on the front row at Bruno. Was it Bruno where the, the condition, you know, Q, Q2 was changing uh, pre pretty radically? But uh I mean, I've I said, Dave, I believe that Ducati have to engage some sort of protocol to help Peko, you know, get within a shot of the championship. That's happened. He's now two points away from Fabio Quartararo. So I think, you know, 
perversely, all the shackles should be off now. We've got a championship battle. I'm happy, at least. You know, if, we, if, we, if we're talking about an Adam Wheeler kind of shape of MotoGP, I'm content. I'm, I'm happy to uh, remove any kind of um, concern from here on in. Yeah, I, I, it's just a little bit sad that, you know, the, the very best bike on the grid with so much power behind it is having so much difficulty beating uh, a really slow Yamaha. Well, on that subject, actually, for me, the moment of the uh, the Grand Prix was watching Fabio Quartararo start. I mean, it was quite astonishing, really. I mean, from fourth on the grid, uh, he was swallowed up immediately in the first couple of laps. He went to 17th, then dropped to 18th at one point. Um, you know, and then remarkably stays, doesn't make any kind of improvement. And from the last three Grand Prix, this is the second time where he doesn't pick up any points. And he surrendered effectively a lead of 30 points, now down to two. So I think it was uh, one of the most remarkable Grand Prix, I think, for, for Yamaha. And Neil, perhaps even going back to the first Grand Prix of the year where we were thinking, right, Yamaha are in big trouble here in terms of horsepower, in terms of the M1 being an outdated motorcycle. That was proven to be unfounded, of course, because Fabio won on a great run. But again, it was that kind of same worry, wasn't it, that he's just been uh, completely swallowed up. Exactly, yeah. Um, it was uh, it was disconcerting watching that first lap, wasn't it? Because I think he got pushed a little bit wide off the exit of Turn 1 that messed up his drive onto the uh, the run to turn three then he got swallowed up by the pack and then you're essentially just in the worst possible place um because in, in that moment the conditions were really quite scary you had next to no visibility when you were back in the pack i think even if you're a fourth or fifth the visibility was really pretty poor um and then he was out on the curbs on turn four and i think it was just four turns in he was 17th so a horrible start um, and uh, yeah, a horrible day for, for not just him, but I think Yamaha as a whole, it was a really bad time to have uh, pretty much, well, I think Aston, none of the Yamaha scored any points, but um, aside from Aston, probably the worst day of the year. Now, I know this might lead on to your moment from, from the Thai Grand Prix, but, uh, you know, guys, is it possible that maybe Quartararo had some thoughts of Aragon going through his mind? Uh, you know, if he's getting bustled, jostled and whatever else uh, on the first lap, I mean, he was obviously, you know, flipped out of the Grand Prix by making contact with Mark Marquez in Spain. Uh, is it possible there was some kind of, because uh, again, we, we didn't hear from him. He didn't talk to the media afterwards. He got straight on the charter plane out of there. Uh, is it possible that some of that incident was going over in his mind? Uh, yeah, I mean, possibly, but also uh, because pit lane was open for 10th, they opened pit lane for longer because there'd been no wet running at all. Uh, so everyone got at least two laps of the of the track. I think uh, uh, Zarko got three laps of the track. So I think it would have been fairly obvious fairly quickly that um, you know that he was struggling that he, he was going to have problems where uh, uh, on those sighting laps because they were doing those fire sighting laps quite fast so it's, it's a possibility that he knew he was in trouble right from the start and also there's just the whole momentum thing do you know what I mean it's it's like the Peco like I say it's been relentless the pressure from Ducati uh, since the summer break has been absolutely relentless and um, they they just keep outscoring uh, Peco has just just kept outscoring uh, Yamaha so I, I, at some point the pressure is bound to get to Fabio Neil, your your moment of the weekend then? Well, I mean, it, it's kind of on a similar topic. Um, and it was, you know, Fabio um, walking out of the garage after the race. Um, and as you, you kind of mentioned, Ed, um, he didn't 
he walked out of the garage. I think he just went straight back to there's like um, little porter cabins at uh, the Chang International Circuit behind the uh, the pit building. I think he went back there and uh, locked himself in. And then I think after pulling himself together, left the track without even talking to his teams. Uh, he didn't show up to any of his TV interviews, which I think he's contractually obliged to do, or Yamaha at least contractually obliged to, to bring Fabio there. And he didn't show up to uh, our media debrief either. So, um, yeah, I think that's quite unlike him. We obviously know he's a very um, uh, very emotional guy. Uh, you could see that from one of the first major disappointments of his MotoGP career back at Jerez in 19 when he had that uh, issue with his gear lever. He had to retire out. He was a total ball of emotion after that. However, within an hour, he had still kind of composed himself and uh, was was talking sense, was, uh, had regained his composure. But um, I think this, as Dave said, this kind of spoke of his pressure and just maybe that sensation that I don't know about you guys, but I have right now that this is maybe slipping away. Um, because I, uh, I mean, for me, only... Uh, a kind of uh, a big peckle mistake can kind of stop him from here, to be honest. Um, you know, yes, we're going to two tracks that have been good for Yamaha in the past, but I mean, the last time we went to Australia and Malaysia was 2019. Yes, Yamaha won or were challenging for victories in both those races when Ducati weren't. But if you look at 2019, Yamaha were challenging for victory in Qatar. Uh, Yamaha were challenging for victory at Misano. Um, and this year, you know, Ducati have just been so strong everywhere. So I can't really foresee a track where Fabio's just going to go in and win. You know, it seems that he's just up against it every single weekend on. Worth noting that uh, um, we have been back to Sepang both in 2020 for the tests and for 2022 for the test, but testing is obviously very different to racing. Yeah, also, I mean, you know, we have to, we have to consider the fact that the, the M1, of course, hasn't evolved much. Um, Quattararo has. I mean, like you mentioned, like you mentioned, Neil, the... Last weekend was a bit of a rollback to like the kind of I wouldn't I'll use the word immature, but not in a negative way uh, for for Quattararo in terms of handling maybe some of the pressure and the emotion that's going on around him. But I still think we can't, even though it feels like the pendulum is a little bit at the peak and begin to perhaps swing down towards Ducati's favour. Until we get to see the competitiveness of Yamaha at Phillip Island and at Sepang, then it's hard to say this is really going in Ducati's favour now. Um, of course, they've always had the weight in numbers uh, and, you know, Pekka Bagnaya will have support from Jack Miller. He will have support from the likes of Johan Zarco, whether it's Jorge Martino and Eya Bastinini now. It's just getting too close to the to the finish line for that realistically not to happen. So the, the, the odds are against him, but I still think, you know, you'll be stupid to, to rule Quattararo's competitiveness out yet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's he's been riding just wonderfully well all year. Um, I think he's, you know, I, I think we would all agree that he's been the fastest rider this year. Um, an interesting thing, because Quadrao didn't do any of his media um, dealings yesterday, it was left to Massimo Merigali to speak to, um, you know, people from the TV broadcasters. Um, and just from his comments, you can tell that Yamaha really have their hopes pinned on Australia and Malaysia. Um, I think he's made a comment um offer to one of my colleagues at Dorna that um, he's a little concerned about Valencia. And obviously, when you look at last year, you can understand why Ducati locked out the front row, locked out the podium. Um, so, yeah, you do feel that, uh, I mean, I feel anyway, he, he needs to, if he wants to win the championship, he needs at, at least needs to go to Valencia with, uh, what, 10, 12 points in hand? Because, uh, yeah, you would not be surprised to see them lock out the front row 
and the podium there again. And obviously, team orders will be in effect in Valencia. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the other guys will be letting Peko through. It'll be a direct order from the top Ducati bosses. Now, one of the things you wanted to talk about was the competitiveness of the Yamahas. Uh, Cal Crutchlow was telling us in his media debrief, I mean, Cal was dealing with his own issues, of course, after that painful high side uh, and a cracked right ankle, I think, the same kind of injury or close to the same injury that he picked up in Phillip Island a few years ago. Uh, he was saying that the Yamahas just didn't have any rear grip. I mean, that was one of the biggest issues at Chang for them. Couldn't really make any inroads in, or any progress in that respect. But uh, Quattararo, again, was the exception to the rule. And if if the other riders, if other experienced pros like Crutchlow can't get their head around how Quattararo is making the difference, then maybe it's also quite a puzzle for, for Yamaha to firstly apply that to their star and then try to work on the M1 generally. Yeah, I mean, it was a really... It was a huge curveball that was thrown uh, in the direction of MotoGP riders. We were obviously expecting rain uh, on Friday. I think all day we were expecting heavy rain on Saturday morning as well. But every MotoGP session was dry up until uh, the race. So there was a, a massive amount of guesswork. Um, I quite enjoyed Marco Bezzecchi talking about how uh, they decided on a, a setting for the, the rain uh, just prior to the race. And he said, basically, they were like this. And he put his head, his hand above, his, uh, <laughs> uh, just uh, in front of his eyes, basically to say that they were completely blind, not exactly sure what to do. Um, and it's clear that Yamaha just made um, some quite serious miscalculations with the front tire pressure. Um, perhaps they were thinking that uh, I'm not sure Fabio might have been uh, a bit further forward and 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 uh, you know uh, not feeling the effects of, of slipstream, but it, it seems as though. Um, some of the other Yamaha guys uh, were affected as well. Now, I have to say that we didn't get to speak to Fabio um, Sunday. Uh, we didn't get to speak to Franco Morbidelli, although I think there was a huge mess basically after the after the delayed race. A whole lot of debriefs were together. So you had to pick and choose certain riders. And I think Franco was on at the same time as the press conference. Didn't get to chat to him. So the only Yamaha guy we spoke to was Cal. Um, but it's safe to say that Cal started in the middle of the pack it should have been expected that he was going to be in the group. Um, and he said right from the first lap um, that the front tire pressure was uh, rocketing upward. Um, it then became impossible to kind of uh, maneuver the bike in the mid corner. And he said he was essentially having to steer with uh, with the rear tire uh, and with the gas. And uh, that obviously just burnt the tire up completely. So it was just a, a nightmare from start to finish. Cal was asked at the end of his debrief, who makes the call on these uh, tire pressures? And he said, well, clearly the wrong person makes the call because he had an idea of what <laughs> kind of tire pressure he would be using, I guess, when he was still riding with Honda in wet conditions. And uh, there must have been a clear difference. Um, and obviously that difference would be owed to the, the you know vastly different characteristics of the bikes. But he clearly felt that um, it was out by some distance. Um, you know, and there was just a, a whole lot of educated guesswork going on. I mean, um, Maybe they were going off the last road race that we had in Mandalika, but then, uh, you know, the conditions weren't exactly the same. Mandalika was resurfaced relatively recently. Um, I think the grip here was quite low um, by comparison. Um, and with no, not even a dry warm-up session to kind of try, you know, five-lap run, um, it, it, was, it was probably too late by the time Fabio had done his outlap and, uh, and got to the grid. 
Yeah, so I mean, if we're talking about Crutchlow specifically, I mean, the front tire pressures and trying to turn the Honda was something he suffered with for a couple of years. I mean, it wasn't a new issue. And it's kind of alarming that he's also having the same problems with Yamaha. Um, I mean, as we know, there's a bigger issue going on with MotoGP um, in terms of Michelin basically needs to bring that new front tire uh, with the load of uh, extra speed, uh, performance of Brembo brakes, the aerodynamics. As we've said many times before, um, it's, it's something that will not only change the technical configuration of the sport, but also the sport itself. Yeah, and the, the trouble is that um, before Michelin can bring this new tire, it needs to be thoroughly tested. Uh, and we are getting more and more races, and uh, I think this is a subject we'll come on to later. Uh, we're getting more and more races, we're getting less and less testing, and so there's less and less opportunity to actually test the front tire. Uh, and also, because there's less testing, the, the, the factories are much more interested in uh, testing their stuff rather than the front tire. So the, the, the tire, uh, uh, I think uh, Paul Trefantham said this on, uh, on a podcast, podcast earlier in the year you know like they have a list as long as your arm of all the stuff they want to test the tire gets tacked on right at the bottom of that um uh, and so you know it's it means that we're just not getting to this tire uh, and uh, it keeps on getting delayed and delayed because um i remember talking to uh piero taramasa i think in about 2018 2019 um and he was saying look we hope to have this new this new front tire for the 2021 season we'll test it during 2020 obviously this was before the, uh, the pandemic and that sort of completely ruined that uh, then i spoke to him again at the, year, at the start of this year and he was like saying well it doesn't look like 2023 but hopefully for 2024 uh, and and now I think he told Matt Oxley, um, um, uh, well, yeah, 2024, 2025, it, it, it keeps keep getting pushing, pushed back because there isn't enough time. And you cannot just give riders a front tire. Um, the front tire is everything for the motorcycle, for the feeling of the motorcycle, for the braking, for the, uh, for, for the turning, for everything. You, you, you need a completely different front tire um, or you need to... to understand it to be able to go uh, to, to be able to go fast i mean eventually the engineers will adapt to it but also the riders really need to understand and, and learn how to use it dave i know you want to talk about tires again in a moment but just to come back to neil's point about the yamaha um every grand prix neil fabio quattararo is telling us that he's riding on the absolute limit i mean he's got that gesture of a uh, you know his thumb pushed up under the chin down pat uh you know mentioned it again in thailand do you think this is just one scenario where sometimes when you're on the peak you know it can catch you out uh, there can be some sort of wrong move. There could be uh, a curveball, like you said, that, to use your words, of like the weather, where you know it can potentially wreck a championship. And in this case, it, this this could be like you know the biggest twist in the narrative this year. Yeah, I think um, Fabio's done a pretty remarkable job, considering he's been on the limit uh, right the way through this year, and he hasn't been you know crashing. He's sort of been, he knows what the limit is, and he's he's constantly pushing his package toward it, and and right on it but um it's very rare that you see him go over it i mean in terms of his races he's finished all of them bar two one of them was a crash that wasn't his fault it was just asking where he made a misjudgment when overtaking um but yeah i know mid-season it did look like he was going to canter off into the distance but um you know the second half of the season has really brought it into perspective that um yeah that you know yamaha just can't keep getting away with it and when you look at fabio's form in the second half of the year i mean it's not it's not championship form you know like since the, the series resumed in august he scored an eighth 
a brilliant second in Austria, then a fifth, and a DNF in Aragon, an eighth, and then a, a 17th in, in Thailand. You know, it, it, he's just about getting by, but you can't criticize him for that. I think he's doing absolutely everything that he can. Um, and we've obviously discussed this right the way through the year. You know, he, he, he's, he's light and days night and day, sorry, uh, ahead of the other Yamaha guys. Um, but Yamaha are just getting found out. And the fact that the Yamaha bike was at the end of its evolution at the start of this year, now that we're getting towards the end, now that the Ducati package is pretty much sorted completely, it obviously had some issues at the start of the year as well. Um, the, I guess the, the, the kind of deficiencies are, are being shown up even more now. Um, it's even more pronounced now than it was back in uh, Qatar, or even in Jerez or France or Italy, Catalonia, Germany, where Fabio was on that great run. Um, so, so yeah, um, I do worry. I do worry that this might have echoes of um, 2020, where he obviously went into those last uh, two triple headers as the championship leader, and then just it ended in a total disaster. Um, Obviously, he's a lot more mature now. His approach is a lot better. He, he remains calmer. Um, he's not as emotional. Um, and I do expect him to, you know, to take it to Valencia. But um, I would say he's absolutely up against it. Yeah, what we're seeing, and I think we've said this several times before, is basically, you know, the Yamaha is still the same bike, more or less, uh, as they started out with. Uh, Fabio was saying they've had a new chassis, but that's not been a huge thing. Uh, and the Ducati wasn't very sorted at the start of the year, which is why we saw Anaya Bastianini win so many, because the GP21 was sorted. Um, now, the Ducati have got their bike sorted, and it's uh, it's really dominating. I don't don't think... Um, that we are going to see this um, continue in um, in twenty twenty. Hang on, three. Yeah, I keep on remember uh, forgetting what day what what date it is. Uh, I don't think we're going to see this in twenty twenty three because um, what the the next year's Yamaha is just a much much better bike. It shows also the rate of development for Ducati, doesn't it? I mean, how they've been able to move things on forward so fast. I mean, two, a couple of years ago, we were praising Franco Morbidelli for being able to, you know, rise up to a position of championship challenger on, a, you know, a two-year-old bike. Um, and again, it just seems that Yamaha's uh, problems in development are really catching up with them now, like you've, you know, quite rightly outlined, Neil. Uh, but then also, again, it's, it's, it's like the Honda policy, isn't it? How much you put into one star rider and, and eventually if things sort of fall apart slightly even just in one or two races then your policy of putting the eggs in one basket just falls down doesn't it it's um it's a, it's a tricky thing to do uh, you know make a motorcycle that works for for so many different riding styles uh, yes yeah it is it is tricky when it is so fast um uh, uh that I suppose has been the real triumph of Ducati is that you know they've made to make they've managed to make this bike which works for everybody because we've had what I think seven different Ducati riders uh, have have had pole all eight of them have been on the front row um, it's a fantastic all round bike uh, but the Yamaha only works when you ride it in a very very specific or it's only competitive when you ride it in a very very specific way but yeah I mean it's all that is all. Fabio, that's not uh, you know the, the, that's not the Yamaha. It's all Fabio. It's all Fabio doing that, and it's the same with the Honda. You know, it's all Mark making making the Honda look competitive. Yeah, three different winners, and I think five different riders on the podium. 
So it's uh, you know the record speaks the record speaks for itself. Uh, Dave, you wanted to talk a bit about um, you know the the wet settings. Uh, you know, again, MotoGP was um, having problems with the the change of climate this weekend. But what was it that kind of stood out for you that you know piqued your interest? Uh, the, uh, for me. Um, because I wanted to know, you know, what the problem was. Uh, like, how do you go about setting this up? So obviously, I phoned up Peter Bomb um, because you know he knows these things, um, and uh, it, he also pointed me to a uh, a couple of posts on Twitter by Alex Briggs, uh, Valentino Rossi's former mechanic in uh, in MotoGP, um, and what it was what. Alex Briggs was saying was basically tire pressure is really difficult for wet tires because when it's really wet, you want a high tire pressure to clear the water because what happens is you need to have more air in the tires to force the tread blocks apart uh, so that the the, the water can drain. Um, The trouble is when you've got a little bit less water, uh, then... That means you get much more heat much more quickly into the tire. You end up with a really overheating tire and a tire which just doesn't work. Um, what was complicated about uh, uh, Thailand was the fact that the track was drying out. So you really had to take a guess at uh, what you thought the track was going to do. And you're like, do you start with low tire with a you know with, with low tire pressure? And if you start with low tire pressure, then you're really going to struggle in the uh, at the start with with aquaplaning and that sort of thing because you're just not going to get the same kind of uh, grip out of it. Um, uh, or do you start with sort of a higher pressure and hope that the track doesn't dry out too much? Or you can there'll at least still be water play in places where you can sort of uh, dry it out. And we really saw that. We saw like Marco Bezzecchi being very competitive at the start, even though he got he did get a penalty and he was uh, he was forced to drop up a, a drop a place. He he said he was very competitive uh, at the start, but as the the track dried out, he got slower and slower. Um, and the opposite was was true with uh, Zarco. Zarco said he really struggled with a lot of water on the track, uh, and that was because you know it, it, the bike was much more focused on a bit of a drier track. And as the track started to dry out, uh, that it just gets better and better. And it's the same with. It's not just uh, about tires; it's also about setup. So you know you, what you do is you drop your um, uh, you drop your suspension, uh, the stiffness by you know the, the spring stiffness by about ten percent. You drop your your damping by about ten percent, or you soften the damping uh, dampening by about ten percent. But I mean, you know, if you think it's going to stay really, really wet, then you drop it by eleven percent. Uh, uh, say, if you think it's going to be, if it's going to dry out, you'd be, you know, up nine, eight, nine percent sort of thing. So um, the worst thing is, is when it's sort of like caught in the middle, and that's why I think we also saw um, a lot of movement in between the first and second halves of the of the races. We saw Alex Marquez again; he had a really good race. Uh, we we saw Alex Marquez coming through because his bike worked better in the second half of the uh, uh, of the year of the of the race it was hard to tell exactly through the screen but you could see the dry lines starting to emerge you know at chang and it was a case of the, the riders weren't desperately seeking wetter parts of the track i mean it was hot i mean it must have been nearly 30 degrees near where you were uh, so you know the, the conditions were changing and um it was interesting i think it was marco bezeki who said that you know the wet settings 
which the teams would have just plugged in before the start of the race when the downpour started, uh, just didn't really work in the mixed conditions, uh, like you were saying, Dave. And that was one of the interesting things as well that Miguel Oliveira said, because the, the wet setting they have on the KTM really just seems to accentuate the positive parts or the strengths of the RC16. And in the first 15 minutes of the race, he was able to lay down a pace that eventually pulled him by a lap 13, I think, up to the lead. And then it was about managing, you know, the the distance, managing the space ahead of Jack Miller. Uh, and it did look like it was going to change at the end. I mean, Miller have, was having a good old go, but then credited Oliveira's speed through the final sector. And uh, it just, it was a, f- a fascinating situation, I think, where it just showed how teams, you know, get ready for different kinds of conditions and how they have to react very quickly and basically how just a couple of clicks perhaps here and there really can throw, you know, lap times and speed and and the whole closest to MotoGP makes it a differentiating factor. Yeah, and when you saw the, uh, the, the kind of wet sessions on Friday, it was quite remarkable to watch just how quickly the track dried out. Um, and I know Sunday was obviously a little gloomier. The sky was certainly darker. Um but um, you know, if they if MotoGP teams thought that there wasn't going to be any more rain from the start of the race until the end, there was fair reason to believe that they they, they there could have been a substantial dry line towards the end. I think we had a, a rain chart at the start of Moto Three FP two on Friday afternoon at lunchtime, uh, torrential rain. Track was completely soaked. They went out on wets for twenty minutes, and then within twenty minutes, or maybe let's say twenty five, uh, they changed to six. Um, such was the such was the dry line that was there. So, um, yeah, another thing that uh, was possibly crossing the minds of uh, those making setup tweaks and uh, uh, you know and front tire pressure choices. Yeah, the, the trouble is you have to choose when you're going to suck because um, there is going to be a period <laughs> where you're going to be really bad, um, and it's going to be really really difficult as well. Uh, and sure, you can look at your rain radar and think, okay, it doesn't look like it's going to rain. But I mean, I was looking at the rain radar all the time. It's really difficult to see whether rain was going to happen or not. I think there was uh, there were some fantastic shots there at the beginning of, um, uh, I think, for the Moto2 race. I went back and watched the, the, the Moto2 race where there was, you know, sort of uh, brightish clouds uh, most of the way around the circuit and then this massive rainstorm right at the end, just almost just over turn three sort of thing it looked like it was literally uh about the size you know about you know about the size maybe a square kilometer or so which would have been sort of you know turn three and a bit of the uh, and a bit of the, the the straights in and out of it um but that's the complication the complication is you don't you can make educated guesses at what the weather is going to do and then you build your compromises around those educated guesses and you know that if it is dry the track's going to dry dry out but uh, i think it was still drizzling when uh, when the race started um and so there was no guarantees you you genuinely just have to sort of like you know take a guess roll the dice on what you think is going to happen and then uh, either pay the price when you get it wrong or, or or you know benefit if you get it right i just want to know an idea of which part uh, did you choose to suck in? Was it the start or was it the end of this podcast? <laughs> I, I I like to suck throughout the podcast. I think uh, I think the uh, I think the listeners uh, appreciate my consistency at just being terrible throughout. Yeah, the regularity. We can't fault you there, Dave. That's for sure. Uh, well, you know, we don't dry out on us. We're going to check our tire pressures, and we'll be back straight after this little ad break to talk about the 2023 calendar as well as some more bad behaviour in MotoGP. 
Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the second half of this week's Paddock Pass podcast. In Thailand, the 2023 MotoGP Canada finally emerged, uh, published first by the FIM. 21 dates, no Finland, no Aragon, meaning that just there's just three Spanish Grand Prix for the first time since 2009. Uh, two new venues in so-called Umbud, Buddha. How do, how do you say that? Guys? Bud. Is that Bud? Yeah. Right, okay. So India, basically. Well, it would have been much easier. Six continents, uh, six GPs in seven weeks to end the season um, and a summer break, uh, which I think people appreciated this year with um, Finland dropping away. Uh, to, to try and describe it, I think intense is perhaps the word. Um, particularly with you know 2023 being the first time that we try the sprint race format. Um, the tricks to Kazakhstan and India are pending homologation. Uh, and this is an answer to a question we had on Twitter from Jan0077, those two circuits. Uh, Dave, you and I were discussing this before the podcast. Um, Kazakhstan is still yet to be completed, I believe. Um, India have already, already hosted a Formula One Grand Prix, so the facility is there. Uh, Finland is gone, um, but like the Finnish venue, uh, Kimi Ring, there still could be changes. And of course, we still have the specter of Saudi Arabia um, hanging in the distance uh, for the MotoGP calendars to come. Um, so there's, there's quite a bit to chew on here, guys. I mean, the first reaction, perhaps from our point of view, is one of dismay because, um, you know, we work in the series. Uh, so you have to think of the logistics and the expense of making this championship happen, not just from our point of view, but from everybody that's implicated in it. Um, but flicking on another view, um, you know, MotoGP is going to new places, uh, potentially expanding the audience as much as it's possible. And I guess that's a positive thing. I mean, it's certainly Dawn's remit. Um, it's a blanket coverage approach. It's like having football on every other night of the week on TV. It's, uh, you know, let's see how much MotoGP we can generate. Uh, I just wanted any of your immediate thoughts. Is this a good thing, a bad thing? Um, what do we reckon? Uh, well, I mean, I actually looked at the I looked at the calendar, and the, the I think the worst thing about the calendar is just that it's really uh, sort of you know split nature, where the first half of the season is really it's quite nice. It's nice and you know quite sedate. I think there's only one. Uh, oh, there's the triple header, which is I think Magello, Saxon Ring, and uh, and Assen. Um, but apart from that, it's pretty much, you know, one race every couple of weeks, which is fine. Um, it's the second half, which is absolutely mental because it's not just six <laughs> races in seven weeks. It is 10 races in 13 weeks. Um, that is 
seriously intense, just seriously intense. There's very good reasons to stick all of these races together, logistics, cost, that sort of thing. Um, uh, it's much better to be flying around within Asia. It's much more efficient to be flying around within Asia and Australia uh, rather than sort of flying backwards and forwards between uh, between Europe and Asia. Um, but it does make for a really, really intense um, and and difficult calendar, and especially with sprint races next year, because it's not 21 races, it's 42 races. Um, it, it makes you wonder how everyone is going uh, going to cope. Yeah, I think that um, when you look back to 2020, obviously we had a completely revised calendar that year because of the, the pandemic and don't know how to do what they could try and minimize uh, traveling. Um, tried to keep everything within a roughly or a relatively small uh, area within Europe um, for the season to go ahead. Um, and I think we had three back-to-back -back races at the end of that year. Um, and that was that was really intense. Now, obviously, there was the whole scope of COVID. None of the vaccine were vaccinated at that point. Sorry, none of the paddock were vaccinated at that point. Um, and there were a lot of worries and stresses regarding that, which I think made the whole situation rather unpleasant for the people involved um <clears throat> however it was a uh, probably the most intense period of my life <laughs> i can say and um, <laughs> and that was all i mean you know the the, the second double header i think that we had was france then two races in aragon then we had a week off then we had two races in valencia and portimao so you know traveling was not too intense we were basically just like you know going within spain one race in France, one race in Portugal, everything was relatively close. When you spread this across um, continents and, uh, you know, places that are very far apart, India to Japan, and then around um, Southeast Asia with uh, Australia in between. Um, and then, you know, the final triple header where we're kind of moving backwards across, uh, across the world from Malaysia, Qatar, and then Valencia. Um, I mean, that is going to stretch. I think that's going to stretch people within the sport to to their absolute limits. Um, but then, you know, I think it's important not to just look at this from our point of view because we're not really we're not really the the people that Dorna have to have to aim for here. Um, I can understand that they're pushing for new markets, but I just think from a logistical point of view and from the people that are involved, and I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about the riders, mechanics. Uh, press officers, uh, anyone involved in the team. People work for Dorna, uh, cameramen. I mean, this is uh, this is going to push people to, I think, their their physical capacity. Well, three things. Firstly, it's going to make everything a lot more expensive because if you try to do things well, then you need, I wouldn't say two teams, but you certainly need perhaps extra staff just to cycle through uh support or you know people may be able to do four of those 10 before a break or whatever else you need to have a certain amount of flexibility uh as well as the actual travel itself now as you pointed out i think this year trying to get around to races and trying to get around the world has been more expensive than ever because of the issues that have been going on internationally um the second thing just looking at the calendar i mean three races in spain is, is that's quite a positive move right i mean we always said that four is overkill somewhat I mean, Aragon, you know, Motorland, I think is a fantastic racetrack. Uh, it's not the most atmospheric event. 
uh, you know, I'm not certainly not really sad to see it go. I am. Uh, it's also you are. Oh right. Uh, yeah, I know, Dave. It was. It was but it's uh, got nothing popular. to do with the racing. It's got everything to do with the environment and and and, and the area around there, which is just the best in the world. It's, uh, you know, I absolutely adore it. Both uh, my wife and I both had a we shed a quiet tear when it wasn't on the calendar. Yeah, uh, my thoughts for you both, Dave. I, I <laughs> was being quite insensitive when I didn't mention that. <laughs> Um, but it's also it is enacting Carmelo Espeleta's plan, which was announced pre-pandemic, to actually limit the amount of races in Spain and to do start a circular motion where tracks will be sharing Grand Prix. So we still have Jerez, we still have Catalonia, uh, and we still have Valencia. And that was my second big point because Valencia is scheduled for the 26th of November, which is going to be the latest ever finish for MotoGP. And I think if you get to mid-November and you want to end the season at that particular venue, you're already crossing your fingers that you're going to get decent weather. Otherwise, it's either going to be grim, wintry, or it's going to be cold. And I think when you're almost on the fringe of December, then that is an even bigger roll of the dice. Uh, I mean, you might as well try and get a race in, in the UK around about October, November time. If you want to be thinking of December in Spain, I think it's going to be touch and go. Uh, so yeah, there were there were other things that stood out for me. Uh, the photographers are going to love it because uh, because of the light of Valencia, they <laughs> they always praise because you do get that uh, that late autumn light where um, especially at the test where riders are riding around and and the sun starts to set and you get these fantastic pho- uh, photographs out of there. Um, uh, because also remember they'll also be on the Tuesday after the race in Valencia. There'll be the test. There'll be the final test of the year as well. Uh, the, the the plan is still to have one day at the one day of testing at the end of the year uh, to an extent this feels like a little bit of an interim calendar because i you get a very strong feeling that in 2024 there's going to be a massive shake-up of the calendar um where you know we'll have saudi arabia being added uh, uh we'll go down to the rotation of three tracks on the iberian peninsula where, which includes portimao um uh, on the calendar each year and then rotating between those five tracks. Um, so you start to think, then I think we'll start to see things being moved around a little bit more. Uh, you know, where where do you start the season? We'll probably go back to starting in Qatar, but then if you start in Qatar, when do you race in Saudi Arabia? Um, uh, I, I don't think we'll finish in valencia then we would we would finish somewhere else we could either finish in qatar maybe finish in saudi and maybe finish maybe even finish in sepang uh, or possibly um finish in jerez which to me would make a great deal more sense because you know the, the jerez in november is still i mean it's, it's still quite chilly in the evenings but uh, during the day the sun is much uh, it's much more powerful than it is in valencia uh, uh, then and there's more light because it's much further west uh, so yeah it's uh, it, it it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question i mean like i completely understand as you said I completely understand Dawn's point of view, wanting as many races as possible to sell, um, but it's going to be it's going to be quite tough. And there has to be a point at which there is too much uh, of a good thing. And I think this is a question for you two because you're both football fans uh, for some inexplicable reason. Um, when is there too much football? Do you ever get the feeling that there's too much football, or? If there's a you know if there's a match on Sunday and one on Wednesday and one on I don't know uh, Friday and then another one on Sunday, would you watch all three or would you go you know what I'll tell you what I'll just watch this this particular game? 
depends if it's uh, the business end of the season, Dave, um, and if your team is doing well enough to be involved in all the competitions towards the end of the season. But yeah, I think there is uh, too much football. Um, and uh, I think MotoGP is obviously looking at that um, kind of idea of having a race maybe every week or every other week um, for a lot of the season um, and thinking, you know, this is this is great. The more races the, there are, um, the more you can sell to, to broadcasters. Um, but I just think that, you know, MotoGP, there isn't the kind of money in it that there is in Formula One, where they've always got a 24 race calendar, which I think is just frankly absurd. They have the money, they have the budgets where they can um, change their staff around. Um, you know, some staff can go to one race and then they change up after a few races and go to another. Um, you know, we don't have that luxury. Um, you know, these mechanics and technicians that have to be away 21 race weekends as well as testing and, uh, you know, going away to the factories to build the bikes in the winter. Um, it, it's uh, It's putting a extra kind of strain i think on the on the people within the paddock and i think everyone is already fairly stretched um so that, that's my only concern um but at the same time somewhere like india where uh many you know a lot high percentage of the population use um two wheels in some form as a kind of daily means of transport you know that's obviously a it's understandable that we're trying to tap into that market um so uh so i understand it but you know, I do have concerns. Yeah, it's uh, oh, Dave, to answer your football question, um, we've just come out of the international we, uh The international break has just happened, and I was actually missing club football. So the, the they kind of restarted again on Saturday. It felt particularly joyous. Um, the other thing about blanket football coverage is that it's quite comforting being able to turn on the TV thinking, oh, I fancy a bit of football tonight. What's on? And there's usually a match. The downside is that the amount of significant games uh, tends to reduce. Uh, you know, if you're not talking about your particular club, if you just want to watch whatever's on TV, there's it's great that there's the provision there to do that if you're willing to pay in most cases. But then, you know, you end up being less emotionally invested in what is going on. That might be the case for MotoGP, uh, especially when the second half of the calendar, I mean, I think the British Grand Prix in August is like round 10 or something daft. So in the second half of the calendar, when things start getting a bit more transcontinental, it may be harder for traditional fan hubs such as Europe or the US to follow the races more closely. Uh, you know, when it's on at various times in the day or the morning, uh, you know, people may lose track of MotoGP. They may lose, may lose track of the bigger story. It means you have to work that much harder with your contents to be able to sell it and to, to, to really show it or to paint these characters in an interesting way that's then not just some, uh, you know, face without an identity behind a visor. I mean, there's there's whole kind of implications going on on this thing. Um, you know, a couple of other negative points of the calendar, perhaps. Uh, no Bruno again, as we expected. You know, a very popular venue, a very popular racetrack. Phillip Island is still mired in October, and it's going to be even later than it currently is, more towards the end of October rather than the mid. So there, there, are, there are a couple of things I think, you know, perhaps could be refined or worked on for 24. Uh, it's a really good point that you make there about the, the, the second half of the calendar 
being, uh, you know, really the important part, you know, the business end, the real business end of the championship. That's when the championship is going to be uh, decided. And it's going to be decided at like five o'clock in the morning in the sports biggest markets or the, sorry, the business sports biggest TV markets, not the, not necessarily the sports biggest markets. Uh, you know, like uh, Italy, Spain, uh, the servos for, for the German, uh, German language uh, market. Um, obviously, BT Sport, they're paying a lot of money uh, and the most exciting and important part of the, of the championship is, is going to be at like 6 o'clock in the morning when no one is watching. Um, that, I think, is, a, is a, a big problem and that would be, uh, again, require a, a, a rethink of the way that you approach the championship. Um, but it's also... This the addition of so-called the addition of India. Uh, there's been talk of you know races in Vietnam. Uh, we've got Thailand on the calendar. We've got Indonesia on the calendar. It's part of a shift away from Europe eastwards towards these emerging markets. Uh, you know, there's been talk of a race in Brazil. We've got one in Argentina. Uh, a talk of a race in Mexico. These are all really, really important markets, which I think um, we're going to see. What we really need is fewer races in, in Europe. But um, uh, that takes a little bit more organizing. And the trouble is that they're all classic venues. I mean, there are very few venues uh, or very few tracks in Europe that that you would really say, you know, I could get rid of that in a heartbeat and not miss it. Just to draw a line under the subject, uh, it's worth pointing out, of course, that it's a provisional calendar. I mean, things could change and, you know, they have been proven to change over the last three years as uh, sports promotion has become even more difficult. Uh, but we will publish the calendar on our Twitter feed, Paddock Pass Pod. So after you've listened to the show, just head over there, send us any comments. What do you think? Will you be attending a race next year? Will you be attending two races? Uh, will you definitely be there on Saturday to see the sprint race? Let us know because we can perhaps continue you know, some of the discussion about how the sport is going to be changing in the next couple of shows. Um, the last thing to talk about, guys, was um, the emergence of quite a shocking video uh, you know, that surprised us. In not too long after we had the uh, the affair in Aragon between you know the Red Bull KTM Tech Three team and the uh, Stellar Max Racing team with Adrian Fernandez, now uh, we saw another case of um, stuff that really goes on behind the scenes, stuff that you never really see. Some of you could say the dark side of the sport without wanting to over dramatize it too much. Uh, it's where tempers get frayed. It's where you could have a 21 race calendar that bounces around the world and you see patience, energy, uh, whatever else, because racing teams are not these perfectly assembled pieces of kit like the race bikes themselves there are lots of different personalities and sometimes it's always it's, it's difficult to get that kind of magic mix of of um bonhomme if you like in the pit box so you know when we saw the footage of um tom booth amos being uh kicked up the ass i think was uh pretty much uh, an accurate description of the video i mean what, what was our kind of first thoughts there uh, on the one hand, it doesn't surprise me. In this is the thing: there is a power dynamic in the in the paddock which people don't really sort of see very closely from the outside. I mean, uh, riders are paying uh, for their rides; they're not the most power. I mean, unless your name is Mark Marquez, until you get to the 
very highest level of the sport and have proven yourself to be a champion, uh, you are not the most powerful person in a team, and especially not in Moto3 and Moto2, where you're probably paying for a ride. Um, you don't have a strong, uh, uh, you know, your incentive to be there is much greater than, or your desire to be there is much greater than the, tire, the team's desire to keep you sort of thing. The fact that it took three years for this to actually emerge and become public is was a surprise uh, of itself. So yeah, these it. I mean, it, it was shocking. It was shocking and shameful. Um, and uh, from what we sort of hear, the it, it sounds like the you know that mechanic will at least be or that crew chief uh, will at least be uh, booted out of the paddock and not come back again. But they, just because he's gone doesn't mean there are, there won't be more who will do the same thing. Yeah, I think you uh, also need to consider um, riders from uh, riders from countries that are perhaps less represented on the the Grand Prix grids, uh, or sometimes assisted by Dorna, um, because Dorna obviously want to have um, as many nationalities as possible, so they can sell the race in the UK, they can sell the race in Germany, or they can sell the race in Austria. Uh, it makes it a lot easier if there's a home hero to market that. I mean, you just have to look at Thailand and how. Uh, last weekend's Grand Prix was marketed with uh, Somkia Chantra's face looking at you from pretty much everywhere um, within, you know, 40, 50 miles of the, the Chang International Circuit. Um, so occasionally, Dorna will try and find uh, a space for a rider, maybe from the UK or from Germany or Austria or wherever. Um, and, and sometimes they will go to a team that is um, not the most well-funded outfit in the paddock. And they'll say, okay, next year we want this rider here. Um, and that obviously means that sometimes a team might look at a rider and think, you know, you're you're only here because of your nationality or you're not necessarily here on merit or you're not our first choice. So these kind of things are kind of sometimes what you what you might feel um if you're a mechanic. I remember in Casey Stoner's um uh, autobiography. Uh, and uh, say one of the first 250 teams. I know it was it was maybe a one two five team um that he uh, that he rode with. Um he said it, it you know Dorna placed in there because he was part of the uh, the junior movie star program. Um and the team just openly didn't want him to be there. They thought, you know, we want a, an Italian rider and we don't want this little snotty kid here. Um obviously what happened with, with Tom Buthemos on that occasion was was disgraceful. Um shouldn't be happening. Um, and it's kind of worse when you you hear that uh, that particular technician. Um, let's not say I wouldn't say he's. he's I've heard, I've heard, I haven't heard that he's continued doing what we saw in that video, but um, from what I have heard of him in in recent times, he is a piece of work um, and uh, not someone that um, is really looking out for his riders or his riders. Um, yeah, it does sound like he's just a bully, I think you could say. Um, someone that likes to put down people and trying to make himself feel superior. So, um, yeah, as Dave said, it does sound as though he might be uh, he might be facing the sack. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, a pretty shocking thing to see and quite shocking that it, it took so long um, to to come out. Um, and, you know, you know, Tom Bothemos put his statement up on the internet um and it was understandable he wanted to stay with that team in 2020 um but uh so, so to do so um he had to kind of shut up um which i think is worrying in a, in its own way 
I think it says something as well that um, steps have been made to, to sort out these videos that we've seen. I mean, um, Max Biaggi and his Sterogada Max Racing team have uh, taken action against the mechanics over the Adrian Fernandez incident. Um, also, as well, we've had CIP team issuing a statement saying they condone that sort of behavior as well. Um, Neil, it's, it's not confirmed. Um, you know, I even tried to find out today, but I believe that certain individual was uh, John McPhee's crew chief, uh, I believe, at Husqvarna. I'm not sure if that's completely true. Um, it's it been is. actually hard to try and yeah, try hard to try and trace the the actual individual concern. But um, I will I will say, like I mentioned, in my opinion, on the Fernandez incident as well, that there there has to be some context to these videos. You're seeing a snapshot of an incident, and you don't know what's been going on an hour before, or a week before, or months before. Uh, you don't know the full state of the conflict, or the situation, or the pressure that these guys are under. Um, that's not to excuse the actions at all because I thought it was primitive, it was unnecessary um, and it was, you know, like Dave said, shameful and shocking. But, you know, you still cannot jump to judge, um, you know, one clip of media like that. I think that's also a mistake in itself. Oh, the, uh, that's generally a problem with social media anyway. You know, like people see something. Uh, there's the uh, the Ballad of Shaky's Boot, which uh, reappears every uh, so often, which is uh, about the young kid or the, the, the fellow who's, uh, I think, Shaky burned through a boot into a crowd. And uh, uh, I can't remember the entire story yet, but then somebody grabbed it and they said it was taking it off some kid and everyone gets all upset about it. And then Shaky Burns says, no, no, it's all right. We all saw it out and there was nothing wrong with it. And, and it's all being misinterpreted so yes you do have to be careful about um uh, about social media posts however i think the one thing here is that the way that this crew chief is behaving is not the way that you uh, that makes you a successful crew chief what you need to be a successful crew chief is to listen to your rider and give your rider what he needs or he or she needs what they need um to be able to succeed and you know a kick up the arse however much you feel that a rider might need a kick up the ass, um, it is not going to motivate or make them a successful rider. Um, it, it, it is so, I find that whole sort of relationship, rider crew chief, so fascinating, so interesting um, uh, because it's such an important part of motorcycle racing. Um, and this was really obviously just a, a, an utter and complete failure uh, as a crew chief, I mean, like hitting someone is wrong. End of full stop. Um, however, as a crew chief, it also completely makes. I mean, you know, it, it, it's an admission of complete failure as a crew chief. You are, you know, you're you're, you're a terrible crew chief if you're doing that because you are failing uh, to achieve what you want to achieve. You know, which is to try to succeed with the rider you have. Try to find a way to make your rider go faster and listen to what he needs. That was what was cool to see about Miguel Oliveira and Paul Chirathan, uh, Dave, in the Part Ferme. I mean, that, that was a real celebration of victory. I mean, Miguel said he's leaving the team. He's actually going to ride his first motorcycle MotoGP that's not a KTM. But, you know, just, just to see the guy celebrating that result, it was like he had signed, you know, maybe another three-year deal when he was staying there. It was a, a real significant bond. And, you know, Paul also had that with Paulo Spargaro. So it's... Uh, you know, uh, it's an example perhaps of, you know, like you said, the relationship is fascinating. It can be sort of fraternal, it can be paternal. It's um, something that really is uh, the essence of these guys are doing a very lonely and high pressure job to succeed. And uh, yeah, kicking kicking your rider and um, effing and blinding at him. Uh, is, I, 
I, I think it's going to work in probably 0.3 of all cases. But I mean, like Paul is a really, really good crew chief. And you can tell he's a really good crew chief because he's worked with some really incredibly different personalities and he finds a way to work with them. Uh, uh, others have been the same, uh, you know, uh, uh, others have been the same in the way that they've managed to adapt to different riders and it's just been it's been uh, i've actually done a video or a uh, uh, an interview with uh, matteo flamini who used to be valentino rossi's uh, data guy he's now uh, marco bezecchi's crew chief um it would spent an hour almost an hour talking to him so it's going to take a very long time to actually talk it all up but it was really really interesting i, I just found it really uh, hearing how that relationship is built and what you're doing that to me it is it, absolutely fascinating and what's clear is this particular individual um who was uh, who was kicking uh, uh, tom booth amos um completely failed as a crew chief well on that note we're gonna start with our losers of the weekend our losers of the uh, thai grand prix and uh, neil and you kind of mentioned his name earlier one of the brightest smiles in the motor gb paddock uh, didn't have too much to smile about at the weekend Exactly. Sankhya Tantra uh, was poised to become an absolute. I mean, he's already a, a hero in Thailand, um, but he was poised to take his uh, his kind of fame, I think, from um, celebrity to minor deity um, by uh, scoring pole position um, on Saturday. First Thai rider to score a Grand Prix pole position in history um, and then was leading the, the Moto2 race. But um, perhaps just got a little carried away those were really treacherous conditions um and also it kind of showed you the perils of, of leading those conditions in model two chantra led early on um he crashed out then philip salat took control and uh, salat very nearly crashed out at turn three uh, just before the red flag was shown and uh tony Arbolino got through for the victory but um yeah chantra was uh Oh, so close he had such a fantastic weekend up until then um you feel if it was dry he really really would have been right in the running for for victory but um it uh it unfortunately wasn't to be one nice thing that i did here though i was speaking to um uh one of the uh thai uh tv presenters and they were they had interviewed uh, some cats crew after the race um and the crew basically just said like they were so proud of some cat they thought he did a fantastic weekend he handled the kind of pressure up until the race admirably and um you know they they feel that uh, this won't be the only time that he's in with a shot of winning some grand prix so i thought that was quite quite sweet quite nice yeah it was definitely cool they took pole position i mean talk about getting your home crowd excited and I mean, the promoter must have loved him as well i mean if that's going out on national news on saturday evening then you, you can count on a few extra fans probably coming to the racetrack even if the weather does look pretty horrendous on the forecast in the same news bulletin but uh, you can see the way he committed to that corner nil and it was you know when you watched everyone else then trying to go through there he was he was full of beans wasn't he I mean he was really going for it and I thought it was also telling on the TV broadcast but when they cut to him back in the pit box or in his sort of private area or wherever it was um the the roar from the crowd of support was um was mega and I think that also justifies the people you know why MotoGP has to go to these places because you know you just need one rider like that as we saw with his siren in Malaysia that really just drives this whole swell of momentum around the sport in, in that territory and it's really cool 75,000 people turned up, uh, you know, that's uh, down from 2018 to 2019. But still, that's a lot of people. That's much more than a lot of European races. 
Uh, Dave, for you, you're feeling particularly blue about Bologna. Uh, I am. I mean, it's ironic, really, because my I suppose my loser are both winners and losers because, you know, Ducati took a big step towards a, you know, finally winning that first Ryder Championship since since 2007 with Casey Stoner. Um, but the way that they're going about it is making them look... Um, how can I put this? I mean, it, it, it's it, it, it's they're almost bullying their way to a championship, and it's just that's just not a look good. Like David Tadotti spends more time uh, in the Pramac uh, garage and more time in the Grassini garage than he does in the in the factory garage because he's uh, you know lecturing people. Well, he, well, he's probably giving nice polite hints. He's growling. About, yes, he's, growling. He's, he's giving nice polite hints about the expected behaviour, um, and uh, generally it's not. Uh, it's not a great look. Um, I Pekka Banyaya is riding so well this year. Um, he has come on so much. Uh, he's so much more of a, a mature rider. I think he could do it all by himself. Uh, but Ducati are sort of, you know, with in their desperation to actually win a riders' championship, I think they are pushing a little bit too far. My loser of the weekend was Sergio Garcia uh, crashing out again through no fault of his own for the second time in the second half of this season. Uh, he's actually now down to third in the championship standings with Dennis Foggia's uh, very confident victory lifting him above. Um, Isan Guevara, I mean, that was some fr- thrilling stuff, you know, in the Moto3 races, watching all, the go- all of those guys battling for what wasn't even a podium position. Uh, Guevara coming home fifth, uh, doing much better, what, much better, improving his championship situation with only three races to go. Uh, it's it's looking pretty good for one gas gas rider, and you know I tip Sergio to win the championship preseason. Damn it! And uh, now he's he's looking like it's slipping away from him before he disappears off to Moto Two. So uh, never mind. Um, I just I, I I got the right team and shade of bike, but the wrong rider. Is he beating Andrea Mino? <laughs> the 2022 Moto Three World Champion, if Still I remember correctly. Still more mathematically automotive. <laughs> <laughs> Winners of the weekend, guys, uh, from Buriram. Uh, Neil, who was your victor? Uh, well, I mean, going back to the Model 2 race, I my victor has to be Augusto Fernandez just because he came out of Thailand still leading the Model 2 championship, like not by much. I think it's like one point uh, between him and Igura. 1.5. Sorry, 1.5, yeah, because half points were awarded, obviously, for the uh, truncated race on Sunday. Um, but I thought that this was going to be a really tricky, tricky ride, tricky race for Augusto. Um, I think there were four guys that were clearly faster than him on the dry. Agura, Chantra, Dixon and Arbolino. Um, and, and maybe even Acosta as well. Um, and I think Augusto was uh, was going to be in some dips. Agura looked absolutely fantastic on Friday. Um, and even though Chantra was kind of getting the headlines, understandably so, I think a girl probably had the best race pace. So I was looking at uh, at Sunday thinking Augusto could lose 15 points here, um, which would be quite a, a hefty amount at this stage of the season with the margins so fine between them. Um, but in the end, he finished just behind uh, I and uh, lost, I think, just half a point uh, to him. So um, uh, I would say that that is, a, that is a minor victory in itself because this was looking as though it had uh, banana skin written all over it. Yeah, one category down to two points in the championship and another down to one and a half. It's really getting close as we get to the the, the final run-in. Uh, for me, my winner was another KTM rider, uh, Miguel Oliveira. That's five now, I think, for the Portuguese in the Premier class. Uh, seven wins in total for KTM in six years. 
Uh, yes, it was another wet race, but, uh, you know, Oliveira understandably saying, I'll take a win, whatever condition it comes in. Uh, you know, it hasn't been an easy season for, for the Austrians, but, um, you know, I thought the way Oliveira really attacked that Grand Prix and fended off Jack Miller as well, again, by using the strengths of the bike and, and everything, the the immediacy of the of the situation, being able to adapt and, and really stamp his impression on that was, um, was first class to me. Uh, Dave, who was your winner? Uh, my winner um, is Jack Miller, um, the man who came second. I mean, you agree with uh, Oliveira. Oliveira did an, an amazing job, just a fantastic job. Uh, and it shows that the, you know, the, the KTM is there, but not quite there. Um, and when the conditions sort of put the or make the chassis irrelevant then, then they can be they can be competitive we saw the same uh, to a certain extent also in Mategi which is a simpler track which doesn't require the kind of turning um, uh, Oliveira rode fantastic but Jack Miller is just on an incredible role at the moment you know fresh off of victory in uh, in Mategi uh, rode a fantastic race uh, to, to finish second um, came through you know coming through from the second row he, he he was very controlled. He did his best. He, he looked like he could really challenge uh, Oliveira, um, but he was sort of fast in the wrong part of the track. If you like, you know, he was fast in in the first two sectors, and Oliveira was better in the in the second two sectors. Um, so couldn't really make a pass. But uh, yeah, I mean, Jack Miller, and there's something about Jack Miller at the moment. He's just really. He's calm and collected and cool and 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 just much more complete at the moment. So, yeah, for me, my winner of this weekend is, is Jack Miller, especially going to Phillip Island next. And he's uh, getting married. Yeah. yeah. Getting married it depends on your view of, uh, depends on your view of marriage, of course. But, uh, you know, for some people, it's the most wonderful thing in the world. And, uh, you know, it's obviously had a common influence on him. Um, Neil, by your comment earlier that Fabio Quattararo's second half of the season has not been championship form, Miller, on the other hand, has been someone who's really racked, racked up the results and the consistency. And now to put himself 35 points away from the top of the standings, I mean, realistically, it's a, it's a long, long shot. But, uh, you know, he's still still in with a shout. I mean, and that goes to show, you know, when you can rack things together that it can can put on you know you can put it off like Bagnai almost did last year yeah 40 points I think it is it would have been 35 if he if he won the race but um but yeah I mean uh, yeah it's a long shot he admitted it's a long shot on uh, in the press conference after the race uh, but if he has a fantastic Phillip Island and it has this kind of fairy tale dream weekend and takes the win I mean there's no reason to think that uh, Philip Allen won't have similar weather conditions to what we just saw there uh, yesterday in uh, in Bururam. And if Jack was to win the race there and um, Fabio and Pecco were again to have a, a bit of an off day, um, then, yeah, then he's, he's right back into it with two races to go. And then Ducati have another headache because suddenly they've got uh, three guys with real with you know, with chances of the championship, or, or two guys with, with really good chances. So, um, yeah, I mean, it would be great to see Jack come back into it and uh, i have to say uh, when the graphic came up during the race when jack was leading to show that he would have been th 35 points off i was like no that can't that just can't be right i, I couldn't believe it because i just sort of written them off completely from the any kind of title aspirations um but it shows you what uh, what can happen in these these flyaways and i think the flyaways at the end of the year might well be um, similar to uh, the flyaways that we had at the start of the year. I remember when we got to Europe and we were sort of going through the 
Mugello, Barcelona, Saxon Ring, Aston run. We were like, oh, the, the flyaways at the start of the season were completely meaningless because, you know, the guys that were fast there, aside from Malaysia Spargrove, haven't been the guys that uh, that have gone on to, to be the top men in the championship. Um, I feel that we're seeing perhaps a similar kind of uh, pattern in these uh, in these end of season flyaway races and um if that continues then we could well see some uh wild cards entering the uh the championship fight as well well it's our turn to fly away thanks ever so much for listening again send us any comments on paddock pass pod at twitter uh we'll be taking a break this weekend but of course steve is on world superbike duty from portimao so next week we hope to have uh, gordo and also charlie talking about what's been going on in portugal in the latest installment of that series i think also steve's bag uh, bagged an interview with the uh, world superbike champion as well so stay tuned or stay tuned or check in download or whatever for that one uh, dave enjoy the weekend off neil best of luck with the travels we'll see if we can uh, link up for a show just preview in philip island next week Other than that, thanks to Fly Racing, of course, and Rental Street. Uh, We'll be back again. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. I I I'd like to suck throughout the podcast. I think uh, a bit, uh, I think the uh, I think the listeners uh, appreciate my consistency at just being terrible throughout.